0: Hello and welcome to Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 149. In this episode, I've got another blast from the past for you. We have reached deep into the podcast archive and retrieved episodes number seven and eight. Now, in episode number seven, we talk about another genealogy podcast out of Sweden that was produced for a while. It was called Anna Karen's Genealogical Podcast. And then we cover a website dedicated to the only war fought on American soil by Americans, the Civil War. And then in episode number eight, we're going to shake things up with gems on researching the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906 and a gem on how to research other major events that your ancestors lived through in order to better understand their lives and, of course, benefit your research. So hang on. Get ready for a blast from the past. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Genealogy Gems podcast. This podcast episode is coming out on Easter Sunday of 2007, Uh, but by the time you hear it, I will likely be in the sky with my three daughters on our way to Disneyland. Um, As I mentioned before, my oldest daughter is getting married in June and this is her bridal shower celebration. So the four of us girls are going to head down there and leave my poor husband behind to um, struggle away with the taxes. <laughs> but I think he'll enjoy having a quiet house to himself and uh, get a little TV time in, too, without any competition for the remote. But anyway, we're looking forward to having a wonderful time. We love our trips to Disneyland, and uh, this will be our last big fling altogether, the four gals, before she goes off and my oldest one gets married. On a family history note, my parents' honeymoon to Disneyland... And some of my fondest memories are of racing around in all directions as my grandmother patiently tagged behind me when I was little, um wearing her flowered print dress and carrying her handbag and being game to go anywhere and do anything. She was always wonderful and um anyway, it's just amazing to be on my way there with my own kids, and hopefully you know, years down the road we'll be taking the grandkids, so lots to look forward to there. But as I said, my husband will be home enjoying a quiet house, uh, which almost never occurs around here. Hopefully getting the taxes done. And speaking of taxes, the April 15th deadline is now looming. Hey, did you know that the Civil War income tax was the first tax paid on individual incomes by residents of the United States? I didn't know that. I was doing a little bit of research on uh, this time of year and it was pretty interesting to hear. Uh, Taxes have changed a lot since then, have they not? A fascinating article is on the internet by Cynthia G. Fox on this subject. It's called The Income Tax Records of the Civil War Years, and it appears on the National Archives website, which is a wonderful, wonderful website. And the article is an excerpt from the, the National Archives Prologue magazine. It's from the winter 1986 edition. So I'll put a link on the web show notes so you can take a look at that if you are interested and not tired of taxes yet. We'll have more about Civil War research in this episode, so stay tuned. But first, the mailbox. And from the Genealogy Gems mailbox this week, um, got another email from Carolyn. She says, I just listened to, to episode number five. I really liked your suggestion to look for images that might relate to an ancestor when there's no photo available. Well, I'm glad, Carolyn, that you'll be taking me up on that idea. I also got an email from Donna this week. She says, I just recently came across your new podcast and I really like them. I've only listened for the first two, but I find that the volume is very low and I have to have my speakers turned almost to the max. Any ideas? Thanks Donna for your email. I really do appreciate the suggestions and feedback. Um, That's what I need to know from you listeners is just how it's coming across. If you can hear everything okay, Uh, if their information is being useful to you. And actually, I've made a couple of improvements. Turn up the sound. I'm hoping that that you'll find this podcast to be much more clear and louder volume. And I may even go out and take the plunge and make an investment in a new microphone to see if that can help kind of boost the sound and and the quality. So let me know. Does this sound any better? And I hope so. I appreciate your writing and would, of course, love to hear from any and all of you. My email address is genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com. And coming up, gem number one, another terrific genealogy-related podcast. Well, being a podcaster myself, I really, really enjoy listening to other podcasts. Uh, I listen to them on all different types of topics. And I have to tell you, I am very, very pleased to announce that this week, it is finally official, Uh, the Genealogy Gems podcast is now officially listed in the iTunes directory. So you should be able to do a search either on the keyword genealogy or actually type in the name Genealogy Gems and will pop up and it'll be very easy for you just to click the subscribe button and be online for free to receive all of the podcasts. And of course, I'm always in the directory searching on genealogy, family history, other topics, things that uh, interest me. My, As I mentioned before, my parents are actually going into full-time RVing, and so I was typing in the word motorhome and found all kinds of podcasts on motorhoming. Um, so there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. And, of course, as always, you don't need an iPod to listen to them. You can listen to them straight on your, on your computer. The iPod's kind of fun, makes it portable. But one of the podcasts that I came across recently that I'm just really excited about is Anna Corinne's Genealogical Podcast. I'll have a link for it in the show notes. Anna Corinne Schander lives in Sweden, and she's trying to publish a little podcast in English about mainly Swedish-American genealogy. It contains information about Swedish genealogy and history. She talks about records that are available. And I'm really excited about the fact that she has an emphasis on what happened to the Swedes who immigrated mainly to the United States, although she does deal with some other countries, and what happened to them, and what kind of records that they've left behind. She includes really wonderful old traditional Swedish music as well. It's just really a pleasure to listen to and certainly it's helpful to hear from somebody who lives in Sweden and had ancestors that did come to America. So I encourage you to um, take a listen and I just think it's really exciting that there are new podcasts coming along every day and certainly I think that podcasting is the ideal medium for, for genealogical information being shared. My hope for this podcast is that you're going to be getting real nuggets of of great information that you can use and put to work right away, and that it'll be concise enough that you'll have time left to do that. And I think seeing other podcasts come along that come in and specialize on other particular areas, such as Anna Corinne's with the Swedish research, all the better. So um, do give it a listen, and get in there on iTunes, and make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that you won't miss any upcoming episodes. Now, coming up next, gem number two websites dedicated to the only war fought on American soil by Americans the Civil War.
1: Battalion, attention. Right, rest, front. Right shoulder, arms, forward. Let me tell you what is coming After the sacrifice of countless millions of treasure And hundreds of thousands of lives You may win southern independence But I doubt it the North is determined to preserve this union. They are not a fiery, impulsive people as you are, for they live in colder climates. But when they begin to move in a given direction, they move with the steady momentum and perseverance of a mighty avalanche. Sam Houston
0: Civil War began at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor South Carolina 146 years ago this week on April 12th. you know 3 million fought in the war and 600,000 died chances are someone in your family tree fought in the war and I'll help you find out more about who they might be in just a moment but one thing we know for sure is that if you've traced any of your family lines back to the 1860s in the United States, then you have folks in your tree who lived through and were probably deeply affected by the Civil War. Now I'm certainly in this category. We're going to learn more about their experience in order to understand their lives. And of course that's what I think family history is all about. And I guarantee that this is going to lead you to more wonderful genealogical leads. So let's jump into our ancestors' shoes. First, I want to encourage you to read about the Civil War in the newspapers that your ancestors read. In addition to the newspapers available by paid subscription, such as on Ancestry.com, I've just come across another terrific free resource. It's the Historical New York Times Project. Go to nyt.ulib.org, and there will be a link in the show notes for you and click on the Civil War years 1860 to 1866 and just follow the links to your topic of interest. So let's find out more about the Battle of Fort Sumter which was the starting point of the Civil War. Under topics, click on battles and scroll down the page and you'll see a link called Fort Sumter Attacked. And this is going to take you to a digital image of the actual New York Times article and, and it's entitled, The War Commenced. It's a, a fascinating article, and it's exactly what people would have been reading at that time. There are lots of terrific articles in there. Set aside a little bit of time to um, browse through the historical New York Times project. I think you'll find some terrific articles in there. It will really give you a sense of how the, the war unfolded, at least in the media, to the people of that time. Now, let's see if we can't locate anyone in our family tree who might have fought in the war. A really terrific website is the Civil War Soldiers and Sailors System website. And again, there will be a link in the show notes for episode number seven for that website. The website's broken into several different areas. The first one is Soldiers. The Civil War Soldiers and Sailors System website includes 6.3 million soldier names from the National Archives, and they're compiled by NPS's partners in the project. As of February 2000, there were volunteers in over 36 states that had completed the data entry of all the 6.3 million soldier names from 44 different states and territories, which is an amazing accomplishment. The two final editing processes for the records have now been completed, and it's well worth your time in looking through there and entering some names to see what you can find. The site also addresses sailors. The website's been committed to eventually include the names of all the Union and Confederate naval personnel. But given that the record sources for the Navy are not really very well organized, uh, certainly not as much as the Army records, nor are they microfilmed, the target date for the project really hasn't been determined yet. So if you have a sailor from the Civil War in your family tree, keep an eye on it and keep checking back. Now a great another area of the site is regiments. And this includes the histories of over 4,000 Union and Confederate units. And they'll be linked to soldiers' names and the battle histories. I think they're still working on the completion of this area of the site, but the site currently includes regimental histories of units from 44 different states and territories. I think you'll find fascinating reading if you're aware of uh, a regiment that one of your ancestors was a part of. Now, these unit histories are linked to histories of the 364 most significant Civil War battles that are already on the Internet from the NPS site. Uh, It's called American Battlefield Protection Program. The battle histories were compiled as part of a report to Congress um, by the Civil War site's Advisory Committee. So, again, very fascinating reading. Now, if you by chance happen to have somebody in your family history who was a prisoner, the current version of the website includes prisoner record of Union soldiers that were at Andersonville and Confederate prisoners at Fort McHenry. So if you happen to have a a prisoner of war, um, this could be a real boon of information. Another area of the site is cemeteries. Now, the National Park Service manages 14 national cemeteries All but one of which is actually related to Civil War Battlefield Park and the NPS is planning on listing all the names of burials in those cemeteries on the Civil War soldiers and sailors system which is terrific. The first phase involves data taken from written records of Poplar Grove National Cemetery at Petersburg National Battlefield and it also includes some images of headstones which could be really helpful. Now the CWSS also includes information on over 1,200 Civil War soldiers and sailors who received the Congressional Medal of Honor. So if one of your ancestors received that Medal of Honor, you might find them listed there as well. Now there's several other key areas of the site. The National Park Service Civil War Institute includes stories of the Civil War which address the social, economic, and political, and certainly military aspects of the war. So it gives you a really great, well-rounded view of that time. Uh, There's also an area for educators. If you happen to be a teacher, it provides curriculum on the Civil War and some materials from national parks and lesson plans on building a family history. This could be even something if you have young children or grandchildren that you might want to look into to help educate them about the Civil War. And there's an area devoted to black history. So as you can see, this website is just chock full of information. It's a great site to check out even if you don't have somebody currently who that you know from your family tree was involved in the Civil War. Certainly every member of your family who was in the United States at that time was affected by it. So take a look at it now and then bookmark it to go back and check into in the future as more develops in your research. And if you're looking for more information on the Civil War on the internet, uh, another wonderful website is the Military Indexes website. Um, just follow the links and it will take you to a wide range of web resources. And I'll definitely have a link for that in the show notes. There's also a, a terrific book out there that you may wanna check out to have a on your desk resource and that's the Civil War Research Guide, a guide for researching your Civil War ancestors. And I do have a link for that on the website. And to be sure not to miss a single episode, I really do hope that you'll take a moment and sign up for the free subscription to the podcast. You can do this very easily through iTunes. Just search on Genealogy Gems, click the subscription button, and you can get all the episodes from there. You know, the whole idea of a subscription can be a little confusing because we tend to think of magazine subscriptions, which are paid subscriptions. But in the podcasting world, it just means that you sign up so that your computer can go out and search for you on an ongoing basis for any new episodes of podcasts that you'd like to hear. And so, once you sign up to what they call the feed, which is basically clicking that subscription button in iTunes and adding to the podcast to your own library, you'll be able to not only listen to the existing episodes that are currently on, but this way, just like with a magazine subscription, you don't have to go out to the newsstand to get the next magazine or the next podcast, but it actually gets mailed to you. And essentially that's what you're doing is signing up for it to be mailed to you or downloaded to your computer. So I hope you'll do it. Don't be afraid of it. It's a great way to go and you'll get hooked real quick as you get comfortable with using the system. And of course I'd love to hear from you. Um, I always enjoy your emails so email me at Podcast at gmail.com I certainly love your comments and your questions and of course your suggestions. Be sure and tell me what state you're from and how you heard about the podcast in the email. That helps me a lot in making sure that I'm reaching the audiences who would enjoy Genealogy Gems. Coming up next week, we're going to be talking about a time when the earth shook, the sky burned, and how this event potentially affects your research today. That wraps up episode number seven. And right after this, we will be revisiting Genealogy Gems podcast episode number eight. I've got some great news for all you genealogists out there Roots Magic 6 is now available, and it offers some of the most customer requested features like online publishing, the ability to search every record, not just people an editable timeline view, which is really incredible, and new web tags, which lets you link people, sources, places, and research log items to web pages, plus dozens of other great enhancements, and of course, all the built-in features that you've come to enjoy. There is a little something here for everyone. Now, if you're already a devoted Roots Magic user like I am, or if you're looking to take the next step in your family history research and finally start recording your family tree in your own genealogy database, or if you've just been wanting to make a switch to a much more user-friendly program, there's no better time to get your copy of Roots Magic 6. Do it now. Go to rootsmagic.com and download your risk-free trial of Roots Magic 6. You'll see why professionals and beginners alike choose Roots Magic at rootsmagic.com Hello everyone. This is Bill Puller from the Genealogy Tech Podcast, and you're listening to one of the crown jewels of podcasting, Lisa Cook, on the Genealogy Gems Podcast. Genealogy Gems podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Thanks for joining me today. I am so glad to be back sitting down at a microphone. Um, I just got back from my trip with my daughters to Disneyland as a sort of a bachelorette celebration for my oldest daughter who's getting married. And I have spent more time on my feet than I would ever want to spend. Um, I think I think this really was the last big trip where I am going to uh, go full out <laughs> next time. I think I'm going to pull up a bench and just park myself while they go, but um, we had a great time. I love the rides. It's just um, my poor old feet just don't hold up the way they used to, and um, it feels so good to be sitting here at this computer and um, at the microphone and talking to you about my favorite subject. You know, this podcast is going out on Dextay. Well, actually, it may not be technically tax day because tax day, April 15th, falls on a Sunday this year. But typically, I put this podcast out on Sunday and wanted to let you know if you are not already burned out on doing your taxes, you can check out Cindy List because she's got some great links in there about how to find your ancestors' tax records. I'll have a link to that page in the show notes for today's show, episode number eight. Now, last week when uh, we ended the show, I kind of alluded to the fact that this episode we were going to be talking about a time when the earth shook and the sky burned. I wonder if you figured out what I was talking about, but it is also another um, anniversary that falls this week that I thought we could pay some tribute to, learn some more about, and see how it may have affected your ancestors. So coming up, that's gem number one, the Great San Francisco Earthquake.
1: Waiting all alone. Crystal is her name. She's at the golden gate. Then it's a shame for her to have to wait. these long distance to turn me. Get her on the tail.
0: was Hello Frisco by Harvey Hindermeyer. It's a 1915 wax cylinder recording by the Edison Company. And that's courtesy of the University of California and Santa Barbara Library. Thank you to them. Well, it was 101 years ago on April 18th, 1906, about 513 in the morning, that an earthquake that was nearly 8.0 on the Richter scale hit San Francisco. A slip in the San Andreas Fault caused shock waves up and down the Pacific Coast. While many, many people died, it was really amazing that it was fire that actually did most of the damage. My great-grandma was seven months pregnant with my maternal grandfather uh, living in San Francisco when that earthquake hit. They were living on Kentucky Street in the city at that time, and I just can't imagine what she went through. You know, many years ago, when I went looking for my grandfather's birth certificate, I went down to San Francisco to get the birth certificate and Grandpa was born in June of 1906. And sure enough, they didn't have a birth certificate, which is certainly not uncommon because I soon found out just a few months before the great earthquake hit. And it just demolished so much of downtown and the records that were being held down there. It really hit home that in a major event like this really impacted my ability to do research on um, some of my ancestors, but it wasn't until a while later that it it dawned on me as I was looking through my database one day, my great-grandmother was about seven months pregnant when that earthquake hit. I mean, I knew that the earthquake had affected grandpa's birth records, but I really hadn't thought back to, okay, well, what were his parents going through at time? You know, where were they in their lives at that time? I know that they were living on Kentucky Street in downtown San Francisco, and I believe that they um, lived above a grocery store. But as I really started to visualize my grandparents, I realized great-grandmother was, you know, out to here and seven months pregnant, you know, and what a challenging time that is anyway, let alone having to live through a major earthquake in the middle, you know, first thing in the morning, it must have just been really traumatic. And not just living through the earthquake, but you can imagine the condition of services at that time. And, you know, I have yet to figure out, you know, where would she have even delivered him? Did she just have him at home? Did, she, you know, were there hospitals available? Um, my guess is they were probably still dealing with some of the aftermath and the injuries from the earthquake itself. So perhaps the delivery of a baby would have been a little lower priority. So, I don't really know you know, how she got through that whole situation, but she certainly did. Um, my grandfather was born in June, as I said, and, and thankfully they took some photographs and things after that time. In 1906, great grandpa was actually a motorman on a cable car uh, working in San Francisco. And if you go to www.genealogygemspodcast.com, you will see in the show notes for episode number eight. A photograph of my great-grandfather standing with a buddy of his in their full uniform next to the cable car but it's funny he doesn't have a very happy look on his face I don't know um, at what point that picture was taken but I know that shortly after the earthquake he actually went into a very sensible new career that of a life insurance salesman <laughs> and I think that that was that became a real boom at that time was people going into life insurance. They started to realize that they were not immortal and that there was a lot of risk involved. Living in the city and having a home and a rent or you know a mortgage and uh, anyway, so he went into life insurance sales shortly thereafter. They moved and went over to Connecticut Avenue. So I don't know if that's because there may have been damage to their Kentucky Street home or what. I'm still kind of uncovering the the steps that they would have gone through at that major time. and. I've realized that it's really critical to learn more about the event in general and that should help to continue to shed light on it. And anybody living on really the West Coast in 1906 was probably in some way affected. If nothing else, they felt the tremors and the quakes because literally it was felt up and down the West Coast. So if you have had ancestors on the West Coast at that time, very likely they experienced the 1906 earthquake. Let's jump in and learn a little bit more about it. I think you'll find it fascinating whether you had ancestors in the area at that time or not. And it's really interesting to see the kind of effort that people across the country have put into educating people over the Internet about this event and projects that they've taken on to reconstruct the records that were lost at that time. And this actually might give you a hint for other types of major events that may have affected records, So a great place to start learning more about this moment in American history is at the USGS website. And that link you can find on the show notes. They do a neat job of looking at it from a scientific perspective to help you really understand scientifically what occurred during the earthquake, what people would have um, experienced, and depending on where they were living at that time, what they might have felt. Our next stop is a really fascinating one, and that's going to be the Virtual Museum of the City of San Francisco. Now, they've got all kinds of areas to this website that are fascinating. They have a timeline that covers April 18th to the 23rd, step by step, you know, what was occurring at that time in the city. And lots of newspaper clippings that talk about the earthquake, as well as eyewitness accounts, which I always think is one of the most interesting, is hearing from real people, what was it like to live through that situation, Reading some of those has given me, I think, a little bit better perspective on perhaps what my great-grandparents would have been going through. There's also a who perished area, and that's a list of the dead as it's known for the earthquake. The website includes a San Francisco Fire Department report, which is pretty interesting reading. Information about the U.S. Army and Navy operations during the earthquake and fire. I mean, it was... Dealing with the fires was a huge challenge for for the city at that time. It just was at a magnitude that they had never really experienced before, and they learned a lot of hard lessons about how to deal with fire and catastrophe in the city. There are engineering and scientific reports, relief and recovery efforts information, which, again, went on far longer than the earthquake itself did. And there's a neat section on San Francisco one year later, it was amazing the commitment that the people of the city um, put into reconstructing their city. Uh, For them, it just wasn't an option to to roll over and say, well, you know, gosh, it'll never be the same. San Francisco was a really thriving tourist town at that time. And it was so devastated and yet they still just started the very next day, you know, after they got those fires put out, figuring out how they were gonna rebuild. And there were lot there are lots of photographs of the 1906 disaster as well on the website. So I'll have a link for you on my um, show notes. Now the Virtual Museum of the City of San Francisco has launched a new project, and that's the San Francisco 1906 Earthquake Great Register. This is being led by Gladys Hansen, and she was San Francisco City Archivist, and she and her team are putting together an enormous project. Um, you know, Gladys had written some books in the past about the earthquake and um, particularly was really interested, it appears, in the statistics in terms of the losses that were incurred and who really qualifies as a casualty of the earthquake. She wanted to make sure, because so many of the records were destroyed, that these people were not forgotten and lost. That their records were not completely forgotten. She was making an effort to rebuild those records in in some sense. And I want to read to you straight from the website, because I think it explains it really well. On the website, Gladys Hansen states um, the following. She says, because of government and financial interests at the time, the official San Francisco death toll has always been extolled as remarkably small. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors official count in 1907 was only 478 it was thought that a high death toll would hamper the rebuilding and repopulation of the city. Well, originally Gladys focused on the 1906 earthquake dead using the death dates between April 18th, 1906 and May 19th, 1906. However, the Governor's Earthquake Task Force now defines an earthquake death as an immediate fatality resulting from an earthquake or an earthquake-caused injury or illness It becomes fatal within a period of one year of the earthquake. So this new definition really dramatically broadened the scope of the research that Gladys was doing. So she and her team are now embarking on an effort to compile an accurate account of those affected in the 1906 earthquake. And this time, they're looking for information on everyone who was in San Francisco at that time. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of folks because it wasn't just those who lived there, but there were a lot of tourists in the area. So it's not just those that died. She really considers all the stories to be relevant and important. So if you go to the link in the show notes, you can actually go in and submit your information about any ancestors that you had in the city at that time. And certainly, you know, the last time I went to this website, gosh, it was a couple of years ago, this project hadn't come um, come on board. So... Now, in prepping for this show, I found this, and I'm really excited about submitting all the information about my great-grandparents and their experience, and, you know, at least what I know of it so far, and sharing the photographs that I have. And if you have ancestors who were in San Francisco at that time, I suggest that you take a look. It's a fascinating website and a virtual museum anyway, but certainly submit any information or oral histories that you have. I think that they would be thrilled to get them. And, you know, I found a really neat video of Gladys talking about her project. It was part of an NBC news article that was done and I'll have a link for that in the show notes so that you can actually watch the video and there'll be an additional link to the complete article as well so that you can learn more about what she's doing. Pretty amazing gal. I really applaud her for making such an effort to rebuild records that, that just weren't there and really to pay a tribute to those who survived a really devastating event. Now, I was really interested to know, just because the time frame being 1906, if there was any audio, and so I went into Google, and I did a search on San Francisco earthquake audio. Well, I didn't find audio from 1906, but I can tell you I found a really interesting audio recording called Remembering the 1906 San Francisco Earthquake, and it's a recording by the National Public Radio. If you go to the link in the show notes, you'll see that the website not only allows you to listen to the entire original broadcast, but it really offers truly a multimedia presentation. It includes um, a complete timeline, lots of photographs, and even videos that were taken back in 1906. So, check that out it's It's fascinating. I realize there's so much great information out there about the whole event that I really just want to make sure that you know where to find it and the links and what I think the best of the best is, and then you can go out there and and discover it for yourself. I'll also have a link in the show notes for you for a great resource from Amazon, and this is where I took my title from from last week. The book is called "The Earth Shook: The Sky Burned: One Hundredth Anniversary Edition." A photographic record of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and fire. It's a really great book, very complete and is a riveting account and commemorates the hundredth anniversary which was last year. It's amazing to think that a hundred years has gone by. If you're interested in the earthquake or had some ancestors that were there at that time I really recommend you get this book because it just it's so all-inclusive and it's a great commemorative of the hundred year anniversary. And actually, think speaking of Gladys Hanson, I wanted to also mention that she has a book out, and I'll have a link for that in the show notes as well. Denial of Disaster, the Untold Story and Photographs of the San Francisco Earthquake of 1906. She was really one of the first ones, I think, who probably went out and looked at the earthquake from a really new perspective and started to look at kind of... You know, now that there's enough time between when it happened and today, she was able to really take a look at what was the motivation behind what was being said. As you can well imagine, the um, media is not always an accurate source of information. (laughs) And I think that Gladys started to realize that there was as much of that going on back in 1906 as there is today. So this book really takes a look at it from the perspective of, you know, here's what they were saying, maybe what was the reasoning behind that? What was the motivation? Certainly, um, as they often say, you know, follow the money, and you can usually find some of the motivations for why people do what they do. But anyway, this book sounds really fascinating. It's a hardcover book. And again, I'll have a link for you in the show notes. I found another project that I thought was really interesting as well. There is a San Francisco 1906 earthquake marriage project. And it's by sfgenealogy.com again a link in the show notes for you among the ruins of the 1906 disaster couples were getting married very quickly and romances were fostering kind of much as is when war occurs and these and people tend to kind of bond together lots of quickie marriages and some of those romances were being fostered in the refugee camps after the earthquake occurred Well, did they get together and get married for economic reasons, psychological? Was it convenient? This website really explores the unique social and psychological response to the 1906 disaster. And they are also looking for, again, great oral histories, photographs, uh, information that anybody out there might have about ancestors that were married or came together during that time of the earthquake. So check it out. It's a really fun website, and um, certainly if you've got information about ancestors in your family who may have been romantically affected by the earthquake, I know that they'll want to hear from you. Now, I feel like I've just touched on the 1906 earthquake. There's so much out there about it. We're learning more every day. And you may be thinking, well, I didn't have ancestors who were in San Francisco at that time or on the West Coast, so maybe it doesn't really affect me. Well, coming up next... I'm going to show you how what we've learned in researching the earthquake is going to shake up your research with gem number two. The earthquake was a major event, but it may not have affected any of your ancestors directly. But very likely, some other event in history did. It could have been the Jonestown Flood of 1889, or the stock market crash of 1929, But no matter what event may have affected your ancestors, in gem number two, I want to show you how we can shake up your research strategy using techniques that, that I used in researching the earthquake. So step number one is locate the event on a timeline. If you're not sure what events may have taken place at that time, find a timeline that covers the time period of your ancestors and then go from there to figure out what was going on at that time. Now, I've got a really cool resource for you. It's history.com, This Day in History. And there is a link for you in the episode number eight show notes. I think you'll find that it's, it's very comprehensive and it really hits on the, uh, on the major events that were happening on any given day. But once you have your timeline and you've identified some of the major events that happened during those years, Step number two is to get on the internet and do your searches. My examples will be in terms of researching the earthquake because that's what we've just been working on, but you could certainly use these techniques for any major event that you identify that may have affected your ancestors. Now obviously when I started with my Google search, that resulted in a lot of the um, websites that I mentioned in gem number one and gave me a wealth of information about the earthquake. I would suggest that if you don't find something in particular that you're looking for, make sure you set up a Google Alert, which you can refer to episode number three to get more information on how to do that. Um, One of the things that I've actually set up an alert for is to reference the earthquake in San Francisco in that time frame, plus Kentucky. I would love to get any information on the neighborhood of Kentucky Street during that time. And I actually did find one website <laughs> that had a map and had some information about um, those neighborhoods. And so that's something that I've set up for myself in a Google Alert. Next step would be Google Images. Click on the images link on the Google search page you know for me in San Francisco and the earthquake it resulted in thousands of images i mean just you have your choice <laughs> and my guess is for most major events you'll find all kinds of images whether they're photographs or whether they're paintings or you know drawings whatever would be applicable for that time frame um you're certain to find some images that you could use and I love referencing those when putting together, you know, a book or a a pamphlet or something on a certain ancestor. And if I want to share that with my relatives, it's the more images, the better. Then I went into ancestry and did a little bit of research and found that there was one of the results I got was 54 images from the Library of Congress photo collection, all taken in 1906 in San Francisco. Interesting, I wanted to mention this to you. I did this search about two weeks ago when I first decided I wanted to do this topic and I got 21. So they've more than doubled the amount of images from when I first did my search to today. It just keeps proving the point that we have to keep thinking of the Internet as something that is constantly evolving and changing every day just like people do and that we have to keep going back and keep checking in. So I want to really encourage you to keep doing that. One search Even if you get wonderful results, it's not the end. Go back in a couple of weeks, go back in a couple of months and do it again and see what else is new and out there. And also Ancestry, of course, has newspapers. And if you have a subscription to that, I found there was a listing of over 1,200 images from newspapers relating to the earthquake. And that was just the Oakland Tribune. (laughs) So there's a lot out there. And I think it's fascinating to go and actually read the accounts that my ancestors would have been reading in the newspaper at that time. And interestingly, if you take it from the perspective that Gladys Hansen has, you're reading about what your ancestors were learning about the situation, but that may not have been completely accurate. It may have been somewhat, um, had a slant of propaganda to it, just to keep the morale up, to try to secure the financing that they needed to rebuild, that type of thing. So it's a really interesting perspective. Keep in mind, it's, it's just one resource and may not be completely and totally accurate, but certainly it's a true picture of what your ancestors would have been learning about the situation at that time. Ancestry also brought up a photograph that I thought was really cool. It was a panoramic photo of the ruins of San Francisco after the earthquake and the fire. And it's a view as seen from the Stanford Mansion site. Then I moved on to eBay. And that resulted in finding some great old books. Many of them were written almost immediately after the event. And I thought that was interesting, too, because I think of that as a more current phenomenon. You know how something happens and, you know, a month or two later, you know, six books have come out. The definitive tell-all about whatever the event was. But they were doing that back in 1906. And there are several books that I found on eBay. One of them I'm actually bidding on today. And, um... If nothing else, it's just it's a really interesting read to see the perspective that was so close to the event. You know, this wasn't looking back in hindsight years and years later with all the new information that they've gathered. But this was really the raw emotional response to the event itself. And I love the artwork on the covers of these books. So found some great books. There's all kinds of other artifacts and postcards and books and uh, commemorative, you know, plates and things like that that you could find on eBay. Certainly I did for the San Francisco earthquake. And again, go back and refer to episode number three if you want a refresher course on how to send a, set up an eBay alert. You may want to tie a surname to your search, whatever you think is appropriate. And of course, then I went on to the State Historical Society and the State Archives Um, both of which had great information on that particular event. And that would be obviously, you know, in whatever state your event occurred in. But another tactic that I took that I thought was an interesting strategy was going back to the census. Now, certainly I have found census records from my great grandparents over the years, but I actually went back and did a quick review of who their neighbors were at that time. If you think about it, your ancestors may not have found themselves in the newspaper during a major event. You know, whatever the situation was, um, they may have been a little more low-key. But chances are they knew their neighbors. Chances are their neighbors may have even come to that neighborhood because they'd known each other somewhere prior to that. And I think it's really interesting to take some of those closest neighbors and do a quick search on them. Check the newspaper accounts, go into Google and see, you know, did did that person like invent something or did he, you know, save uh, people from a burning building? I think that's that's fascinating as well. So take a second look at those census records that you have, you know, jot down some of the key um, neighbors that surrounded your ancestors, and then do a couple of creative searches just to see what you could find on those folks they may, in turn, lead you back to some information that directly affected or pertained to your ancestors. So that's really a fun one. My last stop was YouTube.com, and it actually turned out to be a great resource for the San Francisco earthquake. And you might find, again, depending on what your event was, you may find some videos on YouTube that actually pertain to it. Now, it may be that your event happened well before the invention of film, But there may very well be somebody out there who recorded an interview with an ancestor who put together a documentary or a photo montage with, you know, pertinent music and and information that a narrator is doing, whatever. There's lots of different ways that videos are put together. So don't think just because your event occurred before the invention of film that YouTube can't provide you with anything worthwhile. I want to caution you to keep in mind that the person who produced the video is obviously going to put their own slant on it. And um, so, you know, keep that in mind. It's not a primary source, but it certainly is a great place to start. It may bring up a couple of topics or things that you didn't know about that you could then research further. And if nothing else, you might get some great visuals of um, how things looked at that time. But a quick search on YouTube for me yielded 10 different videos right off the bat relating to the earthquake. And they range from historical footage by the Edison Company, to documentaries, to personal memoirs of survivors. It was fascinating, and it's really exciting to see that family historians and folks are out there making these videos available to other people. So I hope you've gotten some some new ideas on ways to look at an event that affected your ancestors. I'm a real proponent of, you know, think outside the box, get creative with it. You know, we tend to think in terms of genealogy as doing things, you know, buy the book and this and that. And and, and that's terrific. And it's important to be accurate and it's important to document your sources and that kind of thing. But there's got to be a creative side to this. There's got to be a side where we think outside the box, where we look at things upside down and backwards and forwards and um, have fun with it for goodness sakes. For me, the context of the lives of our ancestors is just as fascinating as the accurate dates and names that we find in vital records. You know, I could go on and on in a commentary about kind of the mindset that we can get into as family historians. It's so satisfying to find good data and information and photographs and things, and I get it all organized. I'm a very organized person, and I've got all my notebooks and I just think, wow, this is fascinating. And I get up into a fever pitch of how really passionate I feel about the depth of the the information that's available about my family and how my family is part of American history and world history. And it's really a bummer (laughs) when you turn around and you try to share that with somebody else in your family and they look at you cross-eyed like, why do you do this? (laughs) What difference does it make that this dead person has, you know, the same last name as I do or whatever. You know, you must have received, just as I have, a lot of sometimes disappointing responses from family members or close friends or, you know, people that you thought might be interested in your research and they just don't seem to grasp it or they don't seem to share your passion for it. And I really think that's because for many of us, it's from childhood (laughs) that we have this passion to do this research, this detective work, if you will. So to me, you know, I I can't imagine why not everybody in the world would be, you know, fascinated by this. But not everybody is is built for that kind of work or intrigued by it. But I really do believe in my heart of heart, at least the folks in my family could in some way be interested or fascinated by the fact that these people are connected to them. And so I really see the other side of my job as a genealogist and a family historian is it's not good enough in my opinion to find the data. I need to make it digestible. Uh, Not just digestible. I need it to go down smooth, you know, and excite the people that I share it with. Their lives could be enriched as well by learning more about their ancestors, their context of their lives, um, the place that their family holds in history, and the good, the bad, and the in-between that occurred I think that everybody has the potential to grasp that, to appreciate that, to enjoy it in some fashion, whatever works for them. Some folks are visual, some people need to listen to the story, some people need to read it for themselves. And that's one of the things that I'm going to be emphasizing in future episodes, even more so, which is creative, interesting, inspiring ways to share all this great information that you're finding so that it does intrigue people, that they can start to embrace it as their own. I want to tell you a short story that, that it really struck me. I actually got a, uh, a t-shirt made that said Genealogy Gems Podcast, it has my website um, address on the back, and thankfully it showed up on my doorstep the day before we left for Disneyland. And um, the very front of this t-shirt is the logo for my show, which is a large photograph of a family of five. And that's my great great grandfather and his family. And so I'm wearing this t shirt, and we go into Tomorrowland for the early morning, uh, you know, entry to the park. I went over to buy breakfast and went up to the window, and there were two gals staying there. And one of them said, Oh, oh, what's that? You know, what? And I said, Oh, this is, you know, Genealogy Gems podcast, and it's a, a show that I'm doing about family history. And she looked and she was just fascinated by the photograph. Are you related to them? And I said, yeah, this is my great-great-grandfather and his family. And she was just fascinated. And you could tell she was a very visual person. And she just looked and leaned down and pointed and said, those were real people. Look how old that picture is. And you're related to them. Their blood runs through yours. And I just went, yeah. (laughs) And she's like, I never thought about that. That is so interesting. How fascinating to learn about who those people were and they lived so long ago, you know? If I had gotten up and given her a speech or shown her a book or whatever, she may have just, may have gone in one ear and out the other, but for her, it was visual. And she saw the photograph and just got it. And she was somebody who had never even considered doing her own family history, but she was fascinated by it and I thought, that's the key. I wanna find interesting different ways to catch people's attention so I think that you know, visual things, things like these videos. This may not be firsthand source material, but it is a view of the past. It may be one person's view, but it can capture the fascination of the, of the viewer, inspire them to maybe want to pursue family history for themselves, and maybe to make that connection if they're even watching something about their own family to think that's. It's really my family. they're not just pictures, they're not just names and books, but these people were living through earthquakes and having babies and buying the first car that ever existed, you know, or they were running the cable car up and down the street. I just think that that is the exciting part of family history. I hope you share my passion for that. I hope that you'll be interested in some of the um creative projects that I'm coming up with, and I certainly hope that you will take this kind of mindset and Approach your research with it as well, just as we've been talking about with um, taking a major event in your family history and looking at it creatively and checking out new websites, looking at things, you know, stand in your head for a little while and check it out and see how it looks from that perspective because history is rich and there's so much to learn and I want you to get the absolute most out of it. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the Genealogy Gems podcast. Remember, I'd love to hear from you. So email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com with your questions, suggestions, or comments. I read every email, so keep them coming. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for joining me for Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 149. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. It's always fun to get together with you. Glad to be bringing these older podcast episodes that are no longer available on the iTunes feed back into the fold. We've got them back on as uh, episodes number seven and eight are now part of episode 149. If you have any questions or comments, of course, you can reach me at genealogygemspodcast at com. And coming up soon in March of 2013, if you're over in the UK, I may see you there. I will be speaking at the Who Do You Think You Are live conference in London, March 20th. And, uh, really looking forward to that. Uh, also be aware that the registration for Roots Tech 2013 is happening now. Now is the time to do it. Get a hold of their early bird special. I'll be there. Um, doing classes. I'll have my booth and uh, doing some demos and, and lots of fun stuff. So you don't want to miss it. Boy, it's just a rockin' good time in Salt Lake City and uh, bringing genealogy and technology together. Gotta love that. All right. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.